0: Welcome to our Human Experience podcast. I'm Professor Catherine Colborn, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series, features thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science academics who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. In 2020, we will be talking with researchers about language and culture, youth identity and the economy, the experiences of older gender minorities, public health policy, and the history of domestic service, and much more. Thanks for joining us.
1: I'm Belinda Galbraith and today we are talking to Associate Professor Bill Palmer from the School of Humanities and Social Science. Bill is a researcher in Linguistics and Cognitive Science. His latest research project aims to determine how culture and social diversity interact with landscape in representing physical space in the minds and grammars of speakers of Australian Indigenous languages. Thanks for joining us today, Bill.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Firstly, I'm interested to hear about your background and how you got into this area of research. What is it about linguistics that fascinates you?
2: I've always been interested in language. I've always been interested in words and uh, interested in other languages and so on. So I guess that just was um, something that always resonated with me. It always um, appealed to me. So I guess I'm pretty lucky that I've got to uh, you know, spend my career largely looking at language.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I believe you you started out in radio and TV, in broadcasting. So how did you switch over to linguistics?
2: Yeah, well, look, originally um, I was interested in linguistics and when I did my undergraduate degree, I did uh, a major in linguistics, but that was a sort of sideline which I was just doing for my own interest. My um, degree, my main degree was in um, media and communication. And I... You know, I was interested in working in, in film, actually. I wanted to, to be involved in the film industry, you know, some kind of starry-eyed idiocy. And I, uh, I I ended up working in broadcasting when I finished that. So I was... I did some stuff on radio. I was with uh, ABC for a while as uh, a, um, a, a, a journalist. Um, but then after a while, I kind of lost interest in that... And I decided that I'd go back to uni and uh, study something, do some postgraduate study, a master's or something, just really for my own intellectual satisfaction while I, you know, tried to work out what I was going to do next. And uh, I actually tossed up between studying history or linguistics because I'm interested in both of those things. And then um, I went to uh, Sydney Uni and just wandered in off the street one day and spoke to the people in the linguistics department and they said, yeah, come and do a master's with us, so I did that. And um, then uh, when I started doing that master's, my plan was I would just do the master's for my own intellectual satisfaction, and then I'd go back to doing something else. But by the end of the master's, there was no way I was not going to go on and do a PhD. And then I went on and did a PhD, and it was fantastic. And then there was no way I wasn't going to try and work in in linguistics, and here I am.
1: Excellent. Um, You've got a special interest in maps and landscapes and things like that, I believe.
2: Yeah, well, that kind of ties in with the work I've been doing on, on space, not mm-hmm. space as in, you know, mm-hmm. satellites and moon rockets, but space as in uh, the way humans understand the physical world they're in, the way they understand the relationship between objects in in the world, right, so... I'm sitting here in a studio recording something and in front of me there's this microphone, but, but I'm thinking the microphone's in front of me, right? You're in front of me sitting over there. But um, there are other ways of conceptualizing the relationship between me and the microphone and between you know, the other objects in the room and so on. So the mo- really, in a way, the most fundamental thing we have to be able to do as humans to operate in the world is have some representation in our minds of where the objects around us are. Otherwise, we're just going to, like, trip over things all the time or reach out to pick up a glass of water and not be able to find it. But we've got to have a representation in our mind of w- minds of where everything is in relation to each other and to us, right? So how do we conceptualise that relationship? Well, people used to think that um, uh, it was always done on the basis of our own bodies you know we've got a front and a back and a left and right so we always think about things as being in front and or to the left or something the water glass is to the left of the notepad or whatever uh, but actually it turns out that that's not the way a lot of people uh, a lot of cultures and a lot of societies conceptualize space instead they might conceptualize it in terms of north south east west so you might say you know the water glass is to the west of the pad or you know upriver downriver or you know Uphill downhill or landward seaward or whatever, and that kind of stuff really when I came across that in you know my linguistic studies, that really kind of sounded like something that was very interesting and a lot of fun to me because you know i 've always as you say i 've always been really interested in you know maps and i mean, i 'm beginning to sound pretty nerdy, but uh, i 've always been interested in maps and interested in landscape and interested in topography and landforms and so on and it really struck me as absolutely fascinating that you could have things like landscape turning up in language with terms like upriver, downriver and so on and turning up in the way people think about space. So those kind of Two aspects of my interest kind of converged in the kind of work I do with that.
1: Mm, I assume that's what you're going to be looking at in your new project that's just been ARC funded, called Landscape Language and Culture in Indigenous Australia. Can you tell me a bit about what that project's specifically going to be looking at?
2: Right. So I, um, so like I say, I was sort of interested in in the role that landscape and that, you know, our environment or the, the, the environment around us, the role that plays in shaping the way we think about space, the way we conceptualise spatial relations. And, um, I, the, the, the kind of the dominant theory in, uh, in this area for quite a few years has been that it's the, the, the language shapes the way we think. But if you happen to speak a language that uses left and right, uh, uses left and right, let's say, in front and back a lot, then you're going to think about space in terms of left and right and front and back. If you speak a language that uses north, south, east, west, then you're going to think in those terms. If you speak a language that uses upriver, downriver, you're going to think in those terms, right? So this was the idea that really the way we think is shaped by the language we speak. But what I started noticing was that actually... You know, it's not random. It's not like anything goes, oh, this language happens to do that, so people think that way, that language happens to do something else, so we think some other way. But instead, I started to notice that, you know, languages that were spoke, smoke, uh, spoken on small islands, because I've done a lot of work on these sort of Pacific languages, I started to notice that languages spoken on small islands often have the same sorts of ways of talking about space that, talk, you know, make use of landward and seaward and so on. And that languages that are spoken in areas where there are big rivers tend to talk about space in the same way. Languages in regions with mountains talk about space in the same way. So that got me thinking that maybe it's not that the language shapes the way we think, but that the environment we live in shapes the way we think. Mm -hmm. And that in turn turns up in a bunch of things, including our language, right? Which is the opposite direction of influence. Mm. So um, I developed this into a, a hypothesis, which I sort of rather grandly called the topographic correspondence hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is that you know languages that are spoken, or the, 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 lingu- the, the, the system of talking about space in a language will correspond or correlate in some ways to the environment in which the language is spoken. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a scientific study, and the great thing about science is you have hypotheses that you can test, right? So that's a hypothesis. It predicts that if I go and I find a language that's spoken in the mountains, they'll invoke those mountains when they're talking about space. Um, So I started to uh, look at, uh, you know, comparing languages that are spoken, that are unrelated, different languages, but spoken in very similar environments to see whether the same stuff turned up in them. Or, yeah. Is
1: this in the Maldives and the so Marshall that, yeah. Islands and R- then Arkansas? Yeah, that's yeah. right.
2: So that's what I'm... Yeah, so this was the Atolls project, which, which I, I tested this on. So, um, so I started to think, well, what would be the, the best way of testing this? Find some kind of human environment, which is really weird, like not the kind of environment that people normally live in. And I came up with Atolls because they're this really strange kind of environment where you have these narrow islands that are sort of strung around a big central lagoon and so on. It's an unusual environment. Mm -hmm. So if the environment shapes the way people think, then um, you should get weird stuff going on in those languages which correlates to it. So I had this big project uh, that ran for a few years until a year or two ago looking at space in atolls. And we compared um, the language in the Marshall Islands with the language in the Maldives, totally unrelated, to see whether they had similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the same language in different environments would be different, right? So we also looked at Marshallese, spoken in the Marshall Islands, which is all these tiny little islands in Micronesia, compared that with the way this big community of Marshallese speakers who live in Arkansas in the middle of the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they talk about space, I don't know what they're doing there. Most of them seem to work in a chicken processing plant. I don't know why you'd go from the tropical mold, uh, the tropical <laughs> Marshall Islands to <laughs> a yeah, chicken processing plant. But anyway, to test that out. And, you know, that project came up with some stuff that um, showed that uh, the, you know, the atoll environment didn't did turn up in the language but it actually showed something in a way that's much more important that wasn't factored into my original thinking. And that's that within any one community, people vary in the way they talk about space and the way they think about space. So what I found was, you know, that the way people think about space, whether they use front and back and left and right or whether they use, you know, north, south, east, west or whatever, depends on a whole range of factors like their occupation. You know, indoor workers used left and right a lot more than fishermen. Fishermen Mm -hmm. used north, south, east, west a lot more than indoor workers and so on. There were differences on the basis of age, level of education, gender, all these individual factors. So uh, it's not the case that, you know, as people have thought for a long time that, you know, in that community, people talk about space and think about space in that way, and in this other community, they do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. In fact, in any community, there's a whole lot of diversity. Mm. So then the next thing comes, let's investigate that diversity. Let's really try to focus in on that and understand, you know, what are the factors that affect the way people think, Mm. the way people think about space, and what, you know, what aspects of them, their lives... Mm. um, you know a play a part in this, so what it really boiled down to is it seems that the way you it's not just the environment on its own mm-hmm. it's the way you as an individual interact with your environment mm-hmm. so that gave rise to this theory which came out of that project, which um, we're calling sociotopography, mm-hmm. which is that the environment affects the way we think on the basis of the way we interact with it and the the meanings we associate with it, and so mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. so that yeah
1: more social factors, economic factors, what where you live comes part of it, but also who you are, what you do in your daily life and your culture and everything like that comes into it as well as to how you use the language to describe
2: your space. That That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, and, and the language itself plays a part too. But so... Uh, You know, so then the Australian Indigenous Project, the one that um, we've got, uh, that I've got this funding for now, which is sort of another big project, really trying to grab hold of that uh, idea of sociotopography and also of the relationship with the environment sort of on a broader level and really drill down into that. So um, one part of the project is to just look across as many Australian Indigenous languages as possible. You know, I mean, there's... N- not many Australian Indigenous languages um, are uh, spoken by many people anymore, some not spoken at all, but um, the, uh, but we're going to look at sort of secondary materials and existing descriptions and so on to look at the way, what is the range of the way people talk about space in Indigenous Australian languages, but from the sociotopographic point of view, we're going to take a handful of languages that have sc- still got Lots of speakers, still got kids growing up speaking those languages, still got communities of people where they do different jobs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're going to you know, embed researchers in each of those communities to work with those communities to try and understand what their relationships with their environments are, how indip- individual people interact with their environment and how that turns up in the way they talk and think about space. And the reason why I'm focusing on Australian languages is, um, you know, partly because, you know, Australian languages are very endangered and it's important to do research within speakers and communities, um, you know, uh, as much as possible. But also uh, because the idea is that um, Australian languages have been sort of held up in the wider theorising about space sort of internationally. People go, oh, yeah, Australian languages, right? They, they They all use north, south, east, west, and they don't use left and right and so on. Um, and that's been held up as being really significant theoretically that shows that it's the, invi- it's the language that shapes the way we think because, you know, if your language just says north, south, east, west, then that's all you're going to mm. do. But everybody I spoke to who worked with Australian language speakers said, yeah, but that's not actually the way things are in the language I'm looking at, right? So I became aware that this whole thing about what Australian languages were like was actually just based on a couple of case studies and really wasn't representative. So this is, you know, it's really important we can learn a huge amount about the way humans operate in terms of space by looking at what Indigenous Australian languages and communities do. And that work's never been done before. Mm. So, you know, that's the the goal of this project.
1: Mm. So it's got a really broad spectrum look at all the Indigenous languages that you can come across these days. And a really in-depth look at a few select languages, I assume, in different uh, environments, different things like that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's this, uh, like you say, there's this very sort of broad, shallow side of the project, which is just survey a lot of languages uh, fairly superficially. And then the really narrow, deep uh, side of it, where we we focus in on a handful of languages to really get to grips with what's going on in those languages. We need researchers who who already have relationships with those communities, who already, you know, know a lot about the languages and so on, or, or else people we can embed for long periods of time in the community. And, yeah, crucially, of course, you know, as you say, it's those different environments. So the plan is, you know, we'll have one of those in-depth languages is going to be, you know, a desert language, one will be in an area with a lot of rivers, one will be on the coast, one will be on an island, that sort of thing. So we can really do that comparison across environments, try and see what effect the environment has, while at the same time sort of teasing apart all those sort of social and cultural factors as well.
1: Mm, Sounds fascinating. Doing that kind of field work to be embedded in a place like that would be really interesting. And I believe you've done quite a bit of that Field work in, in the Pacific Islands, places like that, which are quite remote. Can you tell us a bit about what your experiences were like?
2: Yeah, so when I, you know, <clears throat> I've done a lot of field work over the years, um, not in Indigenous Australia. Uh, I came really to the sort of Indigenous Australia side of things from, through the space project. My collaborators on that project are all uh, specialists with a long history of working in Indigenous Australia. Most of my field work over the years has been actually in the Pacific Islands, mainly places like the Solomon Islands and Bougainville, uh, to some extent Vanuatu, a few places in Micronesia as well, a few places dotted here and there, but mainly the Solomon Islands and Bougainville. And this is when I was, you know, this is the, the sort of the straight linguistic side of my research because as well as all this space stuff, I still do the work, the, the sort of nuts and bolts research of linguistics, of investigating diversity in grammar between different languages. Why, You know, how can languages work? How can languages be structured and so on? Mm-hmm. So Yeah, so I've done a lot of field work in, in those sorts of places, looking at the languages and, you know, in earlier days when I had, you know, fewer responsibilities, I could go and spend six months living in a remote village on a remote island somewhere mm. and that was, yeah, fine.
1: What was it like? I mean... Did you have electricity, power, and you would have gotten to live the life of a local there?
2: Yeah, it was, of course. I mean, these the communities that I've I've lived in and worked in are very remote communities. It's a completely different sort of lifestyle to uh, you know the lifestyle we're used to in Australia or whatever. I mean, it's not an urban lifestyle at all. I, you know, live in a palm thatch stilt house uh, with. You know in a village with no electricity, no running water, no toilets, you know the nearest facilities are you know a couple of hours away in an open boat and uh, and that's you know quite a an amazing experience yeah it's funny some a lot of linguists do field work because you need it's really important to collect the sort of primary data mm. but some people. Absolutely love field work, and some people really don't like it at all you know it's like a, for some people it's a real chore, they hate the discomfort and the being out of their comfort zones and the you know the spiders and the you know everything else but um, but other people really love it and i've always really enjoyed being in the field, really enjoyed living a completely different life, being in a completely different environment and I mean not having any of those resources you know how do you cook you know how do you How do you wash? How do you wash your clothes? You know, but of course, I I mean, I, I, I've always chosen tropical islands for this, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think quite sensibly. You know, I mean, I knew a, and you know, one guy I know did work on this um, language called Chukchi, which is spoken in Siberia, up inside the Arctic Circle, and it's like it's a bit different to a tropical island. Mental. Why, if you're going to do field work. You know, and there are a huge number of undescribed, undocumented languages in the world. Mm. They're all... It's equally important to work on any of them. To work on a language, you know, where could you go? I don't see any harm in going somewhere that's got swaying palms and gold sandy beaches and, you know, crystal lagoons and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that. Yeah. But, I mean, the life is... It's very confronting, mm. OK? I mean, i I remember the first time I was in the field, I was, you know, I sort of, you know, flew to Honiara and then I got this like freighter ship that sailed around the islands for 24 hours and then I got off and then I got in an open out boat with an outboard motor for a few hours and then I arrived at this village where I didn't know anyone, right, no. I'm on my own, except I'm surrounded by God's. but I, you know, I felt the most exposed I've ever felt in my life. It was a really shocking mm. sensation to know that, you know, I had no, I had no network, I had no fallback, yep. that if anything happened to me... I mean, the people, of course, were fantastic and they were delightful and so on and all very friendly and, you know, couldn't, you know, do more to help, you, help me. But if they had been, you know, axe murderers... There was nothing I could have done, yeah. right? There's no way I could have...
1: Vulnerable. Mm. The
2: nearest phone to call the police was two or three hours away by open boat, you know. Yeah. There's no... There's no you, you are totally on your own in a way that I realised when I felt that is something that no one who's not been in that situation could ever imagine mm. what that feels like.
1: Very rare experience.
2: And then you know, I went. We went. I remember once we went to this little island offshore, and um, just to have a look. At, they were going out to the island for something, so I just went with them. It's a little uninhabited island, a classic tropical island, you know, a little round thing with a few palm trees, surrounded mm. by sand and sun. So and you know, the guys sat down on the beach after they'd done whatever they were doing, and they you know pulled out the betel nut and started chewing, and laid back and relaxed, and so on. And I thought, I'm going to go for a swim around the island. So I started swimming around the island. And when I was on the far side of the island, I was just sort of lying in the lagoon. There was beautiful water and beautiful sky and so on, lovely island. And I just thought to myself, if anything happened to me, like let's say, I mean, because there's plenty of dangerous things in the Pacific. If I got bitten by a shark, (laughs) right, or I stood on a cone shell, they have these shells Mm. that have got this like venomous spike, right? Um, You know, and there are other things, right? If something happened to me, that's it. There, w- there will be no care flight helicopter. No. This is, you know, mm. I'd, I'd be dead. Yeah. The guys, after an hour or two, might start wondering where I was and go for a bit of a wand to see if they can spot me. Mm. And let's say I wasn't dead by that point. Well, then they might sort of put me in the boat and go back to the village to get some more petrol and then go to the nearest town where I can tell you there is a hospital... Which is something that you know a term that dignifies it in a way which is totally unwarranted, you know it's a a fibro shed with four rooms and a nurse who comes round once every you know week or two. I mean you're on your own yeah. if anything happens you're dead mm. but it, but it was it's just such a a different experience to ordinary life. That and you've survived I loved to tell the tale. I've survived to tell the tale. And, you know, people usually do. So mm,
1: That's a good thing. It sounds fascinating. It really does. Um, my next question was going to be in regards to you're the leader of the Endangered Languages Documentation Theory and Application Research Program here at the uni, and you have been for a number of years now. I was going to ask about what you think in terms of endangered languages worldwide. Where are we? Are we facing a dire situation uh, with in terms of them dying out?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's, at the moment, there is an unprecedented wave of language extinctions, you know, not unlike the kind of uh, wave of extinctions of animal species and so on that we're, we're seeing. And, and for similar reasons, you know, globalisation, the bringing of influences from outside and so on. But there are... There are a very large number of languages in the world are now only spoken by very small numbers of people and are classified as endangered. The, um, the total number of languages in spoken in the world at the moment is about 7,000 separate languages. Mm-hmm. And estimates, probably the most realistic estimates, are um, that half of all of those languages will have died out by the end of this century. Right. More pessimistic uh, estimates are 90%. Mm-hmm. Certainly the majority of languages that are spoken today will not survive more than a couple more generations, two or three more generations. Mm. And... Um,
1: why th- is that? Why, why, are they just not being passed down or is it just that English and more common languages are taking over?
2: Yeah, look, they, it's, it's those kinds of factors which really are sort of facets of the same thing. So... I mean, for a language, there's, there's, there's one overriding factor that's needed for a language to survive, and that's that children have to start have to grow up acquiring it as their first language, right? So, you know, if they if that stops happening, if, if there's if what's called the intergenerational transmission of a language is interrupted, and the kids switch to some other language or stop acquiring that language, then you know, the young, uh, quite quickly the youngest speakers are going to be young adults and then, you know, not too... You know, only a couple of decades later, the youngest speakers are going to be middle-aged and then a couple of decades after that, the youngest speakers... The, there's just going to be a handful of people in the 80s who speak it mm. and then they're dead and the language is dead. Children have to acquire the language. And for that to happen, they have to hear the language spoken around them all the time. And, you know, the effect of... Um, of the kind of bringing together of traditional small-scale communities into kind of countries and nations like that's happened over the last sort of 100 years or 150 years and so on, that, um, that has uh, had the effect of causing a lot of people to shift away from traditional languages. Now, unfortunately, Australia has the world's worst record for language endangerment, language death, for language death. Mm. Uh, there were probably something in the order of about 400 languages, separate languages spoken at the time of, um, of European colonisation of Australia. OK. And today there are... are pro- something... It's very hard to know for sure, but there's something around maybe 13 to 15 languages that are still being acquired by children. That means that of, of all of the ones that are left of those 400, which might be as many as maybe 80 still have some speakers, most of those have sp- uh, the only speakers, are, the speakers are small in number and old, generally middle-aged or older. Mm-hmm. That it's only that sort of dozen or half, dozen and a half languages, that Indigenous Australian languages that are still spoken by, um, uh, by those Indigenous communities that will that are likely to survive beyond the next generation or two. And, of course, in Australia, the reason for that's, you know, obvious. The The Indigenous population was um, overwhelmed, if only in terms of numbers, by English speakers. But, of course, there were also, uh, also official and semi-official policies of suppressing Indigenous languages and Indigenous culture and, and, and so on and worse. Mm. But um, the effect of of all these small-scale communities that had lived for so long in Australia being brought into a, uh, a one large state which was linguistically, um, you know, well, it was monolingual and uh, that had the effect. of and, and, of course, it means that if people want to get on in the world, and this is something you see all over the world, right, uh, you see this in Papua New Guinea with Tok Pisin, and you see it in, you know, Indonesia where there are lots of many, many hundreds of languages and, of course, Malay, of which Indonesian is a, is a variety, is, um, is spoken everywhere. And if you want to get a job, if you want to get an education, if you want to listen to the radio, if you want to communicate, if you want to go and be in town and communicate with people from other parts of the island or the country, you have to speak the, the large metropolitan language that is the language of communication Mm. in your nation in your state right English in Australia you know Indonesian in Indonesia and so on and so there's a very strong incentive for people to move away from their traditional languages as well as a lot of traditional cultural practices Mm. but a huge amount is lost when that happens an enormous amount of Uh, an enormous amount of traditional culture is lost, but also an enormous amount of traditional knowledge. So, you know, for example, uh, three-quarters of all plant-based pharmaceuticals were discovered by talking to traditional healers who were drawing on the specialist medical and plant terminology enshrined in their language. You know, for every language that dies, an enormous amount of important knowledge is lost. But also there's a huge... um, degree of uh, uh, identity invested in language you know Mm -hmm. people people identify themselves on the basis of the language they speak and the loss of a traditional language significantly undermines the sense of identity cultural identity and self-identity that people have and there's, there's now it's starting to emerge that you know in places like Australia and, and Canada and the US and so on where the same similar things have happened to the indigenous languages that there's significant well-being um, results come from speaking a traditional language. so in, in Australia, for example, and in, in, in Canada and so on, you know all sorts of well-being measures individuals perform better on average if they speak a traditional language. Mm. Uh, you know, that there are lower suicide rates, there are better health outcomes, there are better education outcomes, and so on. Mm. It's not the case that if you speak some traditional language, then you're excluded from everything else, because you can speak English as well. Yeah. right. Monolingualism is not beneficial. People used to think that if you speak only one language, that's good. If you start speaking two languages, you'll get confused, or children will get confused if they start trying to learn two languages. That's absolutely the opposite. Mm. It turns out that people who speak two languages are cognitively more flexible on average and, uh, you know, perform better in a whole range of cognitive tasks. So there's all sorts of reasons why speaking a traditional language uh, is important. This is only now being recognised. Only now are there, only in the last sort of 10, 20 years, are people starting to work hard to try and assist communities uh, to maintain and even revitalise their languages. But we're up against, uh, you know, a, a, a tidal wave of, of language loss. And, mm. you know, it's very hard for communities to resist that. And, you know, we, people like myself and my colleagues do what we can to help, but it's difficult.
1: Yeah, it certainly sounds like a, a huge challenge, but um, something that you and your colleagues are working on to, to help preserve and, and keep some of those languages alive, which is, is really good to see and a great, you know, a great thing to be part of, no doubt. Um, it's been fantastic talking to you today, Bill. Really interesting. Thanks for sharing with us.
2: Oh, it's been great to chat. Thank you.